Let me remind you that chapter 3 really began this section on, on husbands and wives. Peter has been going through and dealing with the subject of the, the household code. There to these five churches that he's writing to. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the idea of wives. Oddly enough, we looked at it on Father's Day. Uh, you're still welcome. And so we, we went through and looked at the subject of wives and kind of how they relate to their husbands and walked through this deal. And as we understood this, as we walked through this, we recognized that within a marital relationship, a husband to his wife, a wife to her husband, it's primarily a reflection of how that couple submits to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not how men and women get along. It's not looking at men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's not understanding ourselves uh, sociologically, psychologically, but it's primarily a reflection of how we come to understand the gospel and then living it out in our lives. Now this morning we turn and in 3.7, Peter offers one short verse for, for husbands. But it can be pivotal in your relationships if you're married. It can be pivotal in your future relationships if you look to be married, and it can be pivotal in the lives around you if you have no desire to be married, but want to invest yourselves in praying for those around you, okay? But as we come into this, as we come into this, I want you to understand something, kind of where our culture is in the midst of this. There was an article written this week in the Huffington Post, that bastion of conservatism, right? And so in this this this. This guest columnist, he's writing and he's, he's reflecting upon the, the mass shooting there in Orlando. Al almost 50 people killed, members of the LGBT community. And he's reflecting upon this and he's writing about it. And he's talking about the link to ISIS. And he's talking about that and he's developing that some. And then he pivots and he turns and this is what he writes. Indeed, ISIS promotes anti-LGBT ideologies and have targeted the queer community in beheadings and other obscene forms of murder, to which we would all say we agree. This is true. It goes on, it says, These acts are an extreme representation of what it looks like to take the words of the Quran to the letter of the law. Even those who are not radicalized in their Islamic beliefs perpetuate beliefs against the LGBT community that are harmful. And for many of us, we would say we agree. We find this to be true. Look how he turns this. He says, still, Islam is not the only religion that encourages violence against LGBT bodies. Christianity. Christianity, in its most traditionalist understanding of sexuality, where sexuality is, only, is holy only between a man and a woman, can be just as violent. 49 people, people massacred in a nightclub. And this author reflects upon it, and those in his circle, in his community, in his sphere of influence, when they reflect upon that massacre, they look at Christianity, biblical understanding of gender roles, they say it can be just as violent. So this morning, when we engage and we study and we see what the Bible says about gender roles, about a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband, recognize that we're looking at, investigating, studying a course and a word that is completely countercultural. It's completely set apart from the line and trajectory of where our culture is going. To be a Christian, increasingly, 
is to be vilified, to be hated. If you struggle with, with your sense of self-profession, uh, self-perception and want to be liked in community, Christianity is going to be increasingly a difficult uh, line for you to walk, a row for you to hoe. It's going to be a difficult course of life for you. It is not for the, for the faint of heart, for the weak need, and for the feeble. Christianity, at its very core, is a call to die for Jesus. And so we recognize this, that even in our understanding of gender roles, even in our understanding of how a husband relates to his wife, we are advocating a course, following a path that is increasingly recognized as being antagonistic and hateful and unloving, and as this author would suggest, violent to those who disagree. Let's read this together. Verse 7, chapter 3. Peter writes and says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot to unpack in this. Let's, let's look at what he connects it to first of all. He begins and he says, likewise. If you look back at 3.1, Peter began that section on wives as well and said, likewise. Now, immediately preceding this is this glorious passage of Christ's suffering. He came, he died, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was abused for you. It's kind of this, this trajectory that he set us on. But if you go all the way back and begin to look at kind of when he set this whole section up back in 2.13, he gives us this instructive word, which was be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. So everything that spills on after that in Peter's discussion of how slaves are to respond to masters, those that are good and righteous and those that are bad and abusive, and how wives are to respond to their husbands, both those who believe in the gospel and those who disbelieve in the gospel, and now ultimately as he turns from husbands to wives, all of these things are to be taken, uh, us putting ourselves in subjection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if, you're a husband, and you are not actively submitting yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then scripture would say you can never love your wife, relate to her in the way God designed and intended. Likewise, husbands. Now look what he goes on to say. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Well, contained in this idea of, of live with your wives is, is a variety, there are a, a variety of ideas kind of compartmentalized inside there. And so there's this idea of cohabitation, of living together with someone. But also contained within this, within inside the Greek word, is the idea of sex. And so we understand that he's addressing, in some sense, sex. And so Peter comes into this, and in some sense he's writing and saying, if you are married, hear me in this, you unmarried people, if you are married, a man to a woman, you should be having sex on a regular occasion. Some of the husbands are like, is it appropriate slow clap? <laughs> Stand with me, brothers. He knows my wife's not in here. Let's just talk about this for a little longer. And so he goes into this, and he addresses the subject, and he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives. And so there's this understanding within the marriage that, 
that, that in some sense, sex becomes this kind of barometer for your marriage, that if you're not sleeping with your wife, if you're not sleeping with your husband, if you're not having sex on a regular occasions, it, you know, outside of some medical condition, there's something wrong. Like, you need to have this scene about. And so if you come in and you meet in my office and you've been married for 15 years, I say, how's it going? You say, look, we've got two kids. We've had sex two times. I don't even know how, you know, like, what's going on? I'm saying, friend, there's something wrong. There's something going on. You say, really, does the Bible say anything about this? I'm like, are you kidding me? Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Does the Bible say something about sex? Friends, I'm about to make your day wonderful. Paul writes and says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is saying sex is good and sex is, sex is perfect within the confines of a marriage. Sex is intended to be experienced and delighted in within the confines of a marriage. He goes on in verse 3, he says, The husband should give himself to his wife. He should give to her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then he turns to the husband, and he says, Look here, bub, you don't have rights over your own body, but your wife does. And then he says, Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may de- devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Christian marital relationships should be sex-filled. Absolutely. Absolutely. This puritanical idea that invaded the church that, that we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion, and we don't have sex outside of procreation is really awful for us. One, because we're not talking about politics and religion, we're not engaging those around us. And because we're not having sex inside our marital relationships, outside of procreation, as Paul would say, we are frustrated. And as he goes on to write, he said, you're going to fall into the temptation of the devil. And so we find ourselves within this understanding that a marriage which is working itself out correctly is a marriage which is engaged in sexual expression within that relationship. If this makes you uncomfortable, then friend, you're going to have a hard time reading the New Testament. Because what he's writing here is something that we have neglected for too long. One of the reasons people get turned off with religion is that we think we're all prudish. You people hate sex. Like this is one of the best bylines we've got. We love sex. We think it's great. We think it's awesome. We, 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 we are people who have sex with our spouses. And they say, really? We didn't know that about you. Are you kidding me? Understand the people you're talking to. Sex is this wonderful expression within a marriage. If you have kids, your kids need to know this. Sex is not this thing to be experimented where they begin to date this girl or date this boy and they say, I want to find out who's a good partner for me. So I want to have sex with as many different people as possible to find out who I'm the most compatible with. This is a terrible idea. But when they have this understanding that God, in, God created, he designed you to compliment your spouse so that you might engage in sexual patterns and behaviors one with another, they begin to understand there's a purpose for marriage. There's a purpose for this. There's a purpose for me waiting. There's a purpose for abstinence. And so he writes this and he says, live 
with your wives. You didn't know so much was contained within that one word. Now look what he says next. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Jack Nicholson, in As Good As It Gets, he's this kind of famed author. He's writing on women. And there's this really awkward part where he's trying to get on the elevator and this, this woman's secretary is just looking at him and gushing. And he's her favorite author and she just wants to ask him. And she looks at him and she says, can I just ask you a question? How do you get in here and in here? How do you know women so well? Nicholson says, this is my worst nightmare. He looks at her and he says, this is what I do. I think of a man and then I take away accountability and reason. And so it's this devastating line, right? Where he, he so ridicules what it is to be a woman that he describes her in terms of what man does not have. But when we really get honest about it, we recognize that this is the perception of many of the people in our community. And in fact, some of you husbands, when you talk about your wives, this is your spoken opinion of her when she's not around. Oh my goodness. Have you seen her drive? I'm just saying i got to raise the insurance. I mean, this is insane. And so, for, for many of us, this is our, our, our spoken opinion when our wives aren't around. We dishonor our wives in what we say about them when they're not present. But in this understanding, when he's coming in here, he's not talking about some deficiency that is within a woman. When Peter writes this, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. He's not talking about deficiency in women. This understanding that he's describing is your understanding of who God is. And so in essence, you read this and he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. So when you understand who God is, when you understand the gospel, that it compels you to live with your wife in a radically different way. Within the book of 2 Peter, three times this word understanding, or really should be better translated as knowledge here, is used in every single time it's used. Is it a reference to understanding or knowing God? It's this knowledge of God. And we recognize that our knowledge of God is corrective in our behavior. It changes our behavior. It's tuning and changing our heart and leading our heart where it needs to go. So in, within your marital relationship, if you don't understand who God is, neither can you live with your wives well. Some of you, your marital relationship, you've been trying to figure out your wife for a long time. And after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, after 50 years, I'm sorry, you're not going to get it. Okay? But, but what we see here with inside of this is she's not this incredibly difficult puzzle to decipher and understand. Peter would have us primarily give our thought and attention to understanding who God is. And when we understand who God is, it begins to permeate and have effect on a horizontal level. So we cannot have success at a horizontal level understanding our wives living with her until we understand who God is on a vertical level. Look what he goes on to say. He says, showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel. Now, I, I saw many of you women recoil with this idea of weakness contained in there. Now, obviously, within the first century, the writing and understanding of women is radically different than our own, okay? But primarily what Peter is addressing is the general truism that men are physically stronger than women. Recognized as a general truism. I have seen some jacked women who I would not want to be on a, on a dark alleyway with at night. They say, give me your money. I say, how much? I mean, you want to go to ATM? I got a credit card. I'll get the limit raised. Please, please, please don't make me suck my thumb. It's embarrassing. I'll never get the image out of my head. And when I tell my friends later, it was, it was five big dudes. 
So we understand that in the general truism, this general truth is that women are physically weaker than men. And Peter comes in and he has this amazing command, instruction for men. He says, show honor. But the interesting thing in this is that he moves outside the normal marital relationship and he expands it to all women. He expands it to all women. And so notice even how the ESV translates it there. He says, showing honor to the woman. We have to show honor to women. Now the amazing thing about the word that he uses when he says show is it's tied into this idea that honor is being given to someone on the basis of the fact that they deserve it, that they are, their value is enough, that, that they intrinsically deserve this honor. And we, we dishonor our wives, we dishonor the women around us when we engage in, in humor that really finds them being the punchline. It's funny, we laugh, we awkwardly we laugh if our wives are there, our shoulders shake a little bit, and we say, oh, Lord, I'm sleeping on the couch tonight, this is awkward. But we absolutely dishonor them. We don't recognize the beauty and the design that God created us to complement one another, not to be combative against one another. God created us to complement one another so that the, the union of the two sexes might complete one another in some sense. But we absolutely dishonor women in our prejudice. We absolutely dishonor them in our attitudes. We absolutely dishonor them in our dismissive posture before them. When we view them as second-class citizens. Now, as a country and as a, as a people, as a, as a civilization, we have been recognizing this and recognizing the ways that, that we need to advance, the ways that we have failed women. Within the first century, when Peter writes, women had no uh, Peter writes, women had no rights outside of their husbands. They had no friends outside of their husbands. Many of them did not have occupations outside of their husbands. If their husband died, they could either remarry or engage in prostitution. Unless they had some type of family member who would bring them in. And so they didn't have a whole lot of rights. They didn't have a whole lot of privileges being a part of that society. We recognize that we've moved on. Queen Victoria in the late 19th century had this word to say about women. She said, let women be what God intended, a helpmate for man. She goes on and she says, but with totally different duties and vocations. Well, a group of men really glommed on to what she said. Most powerful woman in the world at that date glommed on to what she said and they perverted it, they twisted it, and they applied it to make women only eligible for those most menial of tasks, those most demeaning of jobs and occupations. And this is really the prevailing uh, thought and influence for a number of years. We began to see that even in our own country, we were kind of slow to come about. In 1869, December 10th of that year, the territory of Wyoming passes the first women's suffrage law. And the next year, women were able to serve on juries. And so we see things begin to move on. In 1893, Colorado is the first state to adopt an amendment granting women the right to vote. And it goes on in Washington, 1910, California, 1911, Oregon, Kansas, and Arizona, 1912. And then, of course, for our whole country in 1920. In 1976, the first marital rape law is enacted in Nebraska, making it illegal for husbands to forcibly rape their wives. It took us until 1976 to figure that out. In 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that sexual harassment in the workplace should be illegal. 
some things should have been very obvious to us, but they took us a long time to get there. But along with this, there's this separate trajectory of women's rights that has moved up through. And so we find some really kind of concretized dates with that. Roe v. Wade in 1973. That in this really kind of falsely masked impression and desire to give women's rights an equal footing, legalized, opened up the gates for widespread abortion. And increasingly, ruling after ruling, we find that this is what it means to the vast number of our society and culture for women to be equal with men. To have sexual expression with, with no, no punishment, sexual expression with absolutely zero negative bounce back. Abortion is absolutely not a victimless crime. It's not a victimless crime for the, for the children that are aborted. Neither is it a victimless crime for the women who go in. Who have been sold the false information that in this there is freedom. That in this there is release. And that there is abortion without consequence. And the Christian response from this isn't to look at these women and say, What is wrong with you? Do you not recognize life within you? The Christian response for this is to weep for them, to let our hearts break for them, to reach out and to minister to them. Do you understand that? See, because we recognize that even though our society has really veered off track in this understanding of, of what it is to give rights and liberties to both genders in equal measure, we recognize that the Bible has never veered off the path, only our interpretation and, I would say, perversion of it. In fact, if you go back to, to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and verse 27, it says, The Lord God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So it's not that God made Adam and he said, Let me make something slightly less, something a little bit deficient. It is solely reliant upon this guy. But what we read there in Genesis 1.27 is that he created male and female. He made them both in his image, in his likeness. And so we recognize that man is fully prized. Woman is fully prized by God. That neither is more important or worthy than the other. Amen? Paul commenting on this in some sense in Galatians 3 talking about the worthiness of humanity and salvation, kind of our stature before God in the person of Jesus Christ, penned these words in Galatians 3.28. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what we recognize, what we see, what we observe, is that prejudice and understanding on the separation because of gender is wholly inappropriate for the Christian. And so we see a separation of function, but absolutely no distinction on worth. The Bible nails this. It gets it absolutely crystal clear. So our archaic understandings of, 
of really this, this stoic men's roles and women's roles where women need to be in the kitchen, they need to be having babies, men need to be out uh, killing bears and bringing them home. And I don't know about you, but I've never eaten bear, but it doesn't sound tasty. This understanding that, that, that finds its expression in this backwards, you know, chest beating and us going out and, and, and bringing home the bacon and these things. First Peter, Peter's absolutely silent on. And so he leaves these things, these ideas to be worked out within the expression of the individual home. So maybe your home, what it looks like is your wife works and she makes way more money than you do. And you stay at home and you're primarily in charge of things around the house. And that's how you guys work things out. Peter would say, brother, you got a sweet gig. Don't mess that up. Perhaps in your home, it's more this traditionalist mindset where you stay at home and you're working the home and your husband is out and he's doing these things and you're raising the kids and, and you're working insane number of hours. Then Peter would say to you, your husband's got a sweet gig. We recognize within this that each and every couple in here, if you feel some pressure, you feel some sense that people are judging you on the way that you and your husband have chosen to divide up divisions of labor in the home, understand this. Cast their judgment off. That's for the two of you to understand and determine. When Valerie and I first got married, my mom did everything in the kitchen. When my mom went out of town, my brother and I almost starved. We were living in Norway, and my mom went to the States. My dad remembered very fondly how he used to love sardines and Tabasco sauce on crackers. No one should remember that fondly. Let me just say that. And so I remember him popping that can and me going, where's the peanut butter? I don't know how to do much, but I know how to spread that stuff on this thing called bread. I've seen mom do it. And so that's, that's kind of my upbringing. My mom cooked, my mom cleaned, and my dad worked, and he worked his tail off. Valerie's family was totally different. Her mom would, would cook, would prepare the meal, and then, Bubba, you better be up out of that chair cleaning that kitchen because it wasn't going to do itself. And so I remember that one of the first times I was over at her house, I finished the meal, I kicked back, and ah, burp, that was yummy. Where's dessert, lady? Don't ever ask that question. <laughs> and so it was a, uh, excuse me, we're going to clean this stuff up. And by we, I mean you too, bub. Get there. You don't look very well equipped, and so you get to dry. We're not even going to trust you to put up. <laughs> How's that work? You fan it? No, you use a towel. My T-shirt? No, a towel, stupid. <laughs> and so this is like my, my, my entrance, my, my advent to this whole thing. And so we recognize that within her family, it had a totally different expression. So we get married, and I've got a mom who does everything, and she has a mom that had a job most of the time she was growing up. And so we have to figure out how it works. And 12 years in, we're still figuring out in some sense how it works. Recognize that Peter leaves these things decidedly silent. Look what he goes on to say here. We saw the Genesis passage, we read the Galatians passage. And then he turns and he says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. The primary reason that your wife, that all women in this place are worthy of all honor that we could bestow upon them is because as God looks down and he beholds and he sees them, we recognize that they are absolutely co-heirs with us of the grace of life. That the blood of Jesus didn't find itself met out in one way towards men and one way towards women, but it finds itself met out on all of humanity, regardless of ethnicity, race, gender. 
background. So we see that. So husbands, as you look at your wives, men, as you look at the women around you, do you see someone who is a co-heir of the grace of life? You see someone that's not meant to make your life better, but someone for whom Jesus died. And that's primarily what we recognize, primarily what we understand. So they're not this lesser creation somehow inhibited, held back, and diminished by the fact that they're a woman. What we recognize in this is that the call for husbands and wives is to see the value and worth in the women around us. And we only see that in our response to the gospel. Peter wants us to understand the importance of this. So he has this highly instructive word here at the end. Going through this, he says, Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me just tell you something. Some of you men have awful prayer lives. You pray, God, you feel like God doesn't respond. You study the Bible, you feel like spirit doesn't move. And as we read Peter here, we come to recognize that God has set your relationship up in such a way that if you do not honor your wives, if you do not honor the women around you, God will not honor you by answering your prayer. If you are a bloviating idiot, a sexist jerk, God will not hear and respond to your prayers. Talked about this in the response to the women and their submission. Let me just say it again. If you are abusing your wife physically, verbally, emotionally, sexually, or any other deviating behavior that you could possibly engage in, recognize this. God is not pleased. You are sinning. You need help. We want to help you. If you're a woman and you're receiving this treatment, we want to help you. We want to help you to be safe. We want to help him to get help. But we want to do this with you out of the picture. Because we're primarily at this point concerned for your safety. If you don't treat your wife well, God will not answer your prayer. Should cause a lot of us to really stop and wonder. Been praying for years for this, been praying for years for that. I've been finding myself where I just really don't care to study the Word. I feel disconnected from God. It could be, it could be that the basis of your spiritual apathy finds itself coming about as a result of your horizontal relationship with your wife, with the women in your life. If we don't treat the co-heirs in our life the way that God intended for them to be treated, neither will God respond to our prayers. We have an amazing opportunity. We have an amazing opportunity in marriage to display the gospel of Jesus Christ in a beautiful, attractive, gracious way. One of the primary ways that Valerie and I engaged people when we lived in Prague, we would share the gospel with them, we would explain it to them, and we would invite them into our lives so that they could investigate and study us to see if they could read the gospel out of our lives, to read the gospel out of our home life, to read the gospel for how we engaged in, in debate, to read the gospel and how we worked out disagreements and how, quick it, how quickly I came about saying, oh, honey, you're right, I'm wrong. 
but we have to set about applying the gospel to our lives in an even and a fair manner. Increasingly, marriage is going to be watered down. Christian marriage, that between a man and a woman, is going to be viewed as being antagonistic. And as this author would suggest earlier, it's going to be viewed as violence towards those in the LGBT communities and others we would, might find ourselves disagreeing with. This is what it requires of us. Perseverance. And a continued, gracious expression of what it is to live lives holy subject, as Peter wrote, for the Lord's sake. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for marriage this morning. Thankful for the men in this room, those who have surrendered themselves to you. God, we all sin, we all fall short of your word the way that you would have us to live. I pray that you would help us to walk in repentance. You would guide us in all truth and all wisdom. God, that you would be with our wives as we're struggling through this, seeking to honor them the way that they deserve, the way that your word would have us to. Father, for those of us who are single in this place, I pray that you would uh, lead in us a desire to be advocates for marriage and for those who are married. Help us to be found praying for them. And Father, I pray for any who have yet to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be able to see that in our our marriages, that they would see that in our gracious response to one another, that Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, surrendered his life up to pay the punishment of our sins and was raised to sit at the right hand of God after crucifixion on a Roman cross, that they would be able to read that in our lives, that they would recognize the gospel in our union. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.